Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today we're going to talk about the swamp. We're going to talk about it a lot of different ways. And the swamp is always with us. There's a swamp somewhere in your life, somewhere in your past. As a kid, I, I grew up playing uh, a lot in swamps, or at least Connecticut's version of a swamp. And that's the other thing about a swamp. A swamp can be just about anywhere. President Trump promised to drain the swamp, by, by which he meant a Washington populated by oily, slimy, reptilian influence peddlers. And, of course, the swamp is also implied in the Parkland story, uh, Marjorie Stone, Stoneman Douglas, as we'll be talking about later in the show, uh, was key, was one of the keys to the preservation uh, of the Everglades. Uh, the swamp is this place, for the most part, where, as grown-ups, most of us don't go. As kids, we're attracted to it. And we read stories like Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, often referred to as the Washington of the Deeper South, uh, this guy who stalked the, the, the swamps of South Carolina and struck at the British in guerrilla-style raids. These days, uh, the movie Annihilation is very typical of the kind of psychedelic swamp that's out there uh, based on the fiction of Jeff Vanderveer. Vandermeer. There's just swamps everywhere. And I discovered getting ready for the show. Also, there's something called a swamp rabbit that's a real thing, but it's very cryptic. It's hard to see. One of the ways that they track it is that it likes to poop uh, on logs. So they set up, uh, scientists actually set up what they call latrines, where they can at least capture the scat uh, of the swamp rabbit. And here's an interesting other presidential fact. The rabbit that swam at Jimmy Carter's boat creating something of a national incident at the time was a swamp rabbit. So, okay, I've exhausted all my swamp knowledge. <laughs> In about 60 seconds, I've said everything that I know about swamps. Fortunately, today we have lots of other people who know way more than I do about swamps. And joining us now is Dr. Anthony Wilson, a professor of English at LaGrange College in Georgia and the author of two books on swamps, Swamp, Nature and Culture, and Shadow and Shelter, The Swamp, in Southern culture. Uh, Dr. Anthony Wilson, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, does the swamp have a good kind of ironclad definition? Do we know what's a swamp and what's not a swamp? <laughs> well, scientists do, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a, a relatively firm scientific definition of swamps, but most of us don't pay much attention to that. A wooded wetland would be sort of a layman's definition of what a swamp actually is. Most of us practically, though, use terms like marsh and bog and swamp more or less interchangeably just to mean a kind of combination of land and water. So, yeah, I mean, any sort of a quagmire typically we'll refer to as a swamp. And I think that's where some of the, the rhetoric and the sort of D.C. rhetoric comes from. We think of the swamp, too, as kind of an American thing. I grew uh, well, actually, in my teenage and college years, I became very addicted to the vision of Walt, uh, Walt Kelly and Okefenokee Oki Swamp in, in Pogo. Uh, we think of this as this kind of primitively American idea, the swamp. But actually, as would make sense, there are swamps all over the world, as you well documented. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And some of the largest wetlands are, you know, uh, something like the Vajigan Mire, uh, you know, in Russia. Um, swamps all over the world, you know, bogs, certainly. And uh, think about them in England and uh, northern Europe, you know, some variation of wetlands all over the place. I'm particularly interested in American wetlands and southern wetlands because that's sort of my, my bailiwick. But, yeah, you can find swamps all over the place. So not only do different climates, too. Not only do swamps march hand in hand with our history, they even include our prehistory, right? I discovered just reading for the show, there's someplace called the Windover Archaeological Site in in Florida, where prehistoric people used it for water burials. They just would apparently put their bodies into the muck of the swamp. And and in, in, in so doing, preserved the bodies pretty well. I mean, the skeletons are pretty well preserved, and I guess they've got brain tissue out of them that are, that's thousands and thousands of years old because because these people liked swamps. And that's yeah, that's one of the sort of fascinating things about the swamp and there's actually an anecdote about uh, somebody who was uh, uh, caught for the murder of his wife uh, when a body was uh, found in a nearby bog. Uh, this was in England. And uh, he believed it was the body of the woman that he'd killed and sunk into the bog. And it turned out when they actually uh, had done an autopsy of the body that it was hundreds of years old. So his confession was, uh, was a little bit premature in that case. But yes, yeah, swamps have remarkable preservative properties. And that's part of why in some cultures, we tend to think of them as links to the primordial or the prehistoric. The alligators don't hurt as well, you know, in terms of uh, links to the prehistoric. I think it's also, it is a place where, as adults, if we don't have kind of some special business there or some special affinity, we don't go there. There aren't too many places in the United States that people just kind of don't go. But but there's a way in which the swamp, because people think mosquitoes, alligators, uh, snakes, and no solid footing, people don't go there. Well, exactly. I mean, you sort of have to very intentionally uh, sort of psych yourself up to go to the swamps, right, to seek out a swamp tour and to really want to kind of experience the swamp. In general, as a practical matter, we do tend to avoid them. And for those reasons that you say, the, the uh, footing is treacherous often. They tend to be breeding grounds for mosquitoes. And, you know, typically they're, they're places that we avoid. And I think that's, too, sort of colored a lot of the, the rhetoric that, uh, that connects with swamps as well. They're often regarded as, and, you know, this used to be the case more than it is now, sort of practical obstacles to progress, right? Swamps are nuisances. Swamps are in the way of what we want to do rather than a kind of destination in themselves. Although we go back far enough, and not only do we have those prehistoric people using them as burial grounds, but we have Native Americans intentionally living in swamps. I mean, there's certainly a point where they're in the swamps also because uh, the white settler has chased them out of other lands. But it does seem even before that happens, right, there are Native Americans who choose to live in swamps. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of that stigma comes from the sort of perspective of white settlers who would see dwelling in the swamp as a sort of de facto uh, exclusion from civilization. It's the realm of savages, right? And some of that goes back to or is related to, anyway, sort of puritanical attitudes about wilderness in general. I've always thought about swamps as sort of distillations of pure wildness, at least in the popular imagination. And we know how Puritans felt about wildness, right? The devil's domain beyond, you know, the civilization, the holy civilization that they were establishing. And so those who dwelt in the swamps tended to be regarded as either savage or as sort of rejects of civilization. Uh, criminals, um, you know, swampers as a general term were kind of uh, ne'er-do-wells and undesirables. And then in the South, you also had swamps becoming havens for escaped slaves. 
um, which led a, uh, sort of lent a whole other layer of complexity to the relationship between sort of southern plantation culture and the swamp. Right. So up here in the Northeast, we have a term, particularly in eastern Connecticut, uh, and, and the part of eastern Connecticut that borders uh, its counterparts in Massachusetts and Rhode Island called Swamp Yankee. Uh, swamp Yankee is not an entirely kind term, although it's sort of like the New England version of redneck. You know, you can kind of certain people wear that label with pride. And there's also a sense uh, of Swamp Yankees maybe having a little bit of a connection, maybe even a genetic connection in some cases to the Native Americans who came before them. Because we know up here the Narragansetts uh, lived out in the swamp and that some of the major figures, King Philip, whose name is all over everything, at least took refuge in swamps. And it must have, and I know that's true in the South too. And I guess part of it may have been that swamps were, are, are in another way, places of abundance. You know, if you, if you can put up with the mosquitoes and uh, some of the Native Americans I think were there because, wow, there's a lot of fish, there's a lot of alligators, there's a lot of whatever else it is that you think you need. Exactly. And it was a source of abundance that because it was relatively easy to come by if you lived a certain kind of a life, that was sort of fundamentally offensive to the sensibilities of more industry-minded white settlers. William Byrd II derided what he called the lubbers, those who dwelt at the edges of the swamp, for being slothful and believed the swamp itself, because it was relatively easy to eke out a sort of subsistence there anyway, led people to sloth and needed to be cleared for the sake of, you know, industry in the way we think of it now, but also industry as a kind of a virtue. Right. So um, uh, the other thing that begins to happen, I think, and and I think it is, you know, it it comes probably uh, becomes pretty prominent in the the late 19th century. Uh, As you say, there's more settlement, there's more industrialization, there's more this sense that the swamp is a word that's often preceded by the adjective dismal, right? The Mm -hmm. dismal swamp. There's a sense that, yeah, the swamp is a thing we don't want. Exactly. And there are a lot of different reasons for that, um, both practical and sort of uh, fanciful, right? There's a lot of swamp lore about monsters, about devils. Uh, Dante figures one layer, level of hell as a kind of a swamp. Um, you know, dating back to mythology, you've got these uh, swamp monsters like the Lernian Hydra. And then alongside that, you've got more practical fears, right? The idea that that had particularly long sort of a life, that the swamp air itself was fundamentally hazardous, that malaria, you know, as the, the translated term would imply, actually came from the exhalations of the swamp, and, you know, that the swamp was poison in some fundamental way. And so, you know, the dismal nature of the swamp is that combination of, you know, superstition and then sort of practical fears associated with it. And, you know, was remarkable, you know, it, it appealed to that, that sensibility of the sublime as well that comes along with sort of American romanticism. Thoreau and Emerson loved swamps, and they didn't regard them as necessarily dismal, but other writers of that time would sort of embrace the atmosphere of the swamp as sort of picturesquely creepy. You know, uh, Longfellow, for example, and Evangeline would, uh, would sort of celebrate those aspects of the swamp. Right. Uh, with Thoreau writes, when I would recreate myself, I seek the darkest wood, the thickest and most interminable into the citizen most dismal swamp. I enter a swamp as a sacred place, a sanctum sanctorum. There is the strength, the marrow row of of nature. But see, interesting how, how, how he says that thing about the citizen, right? Because we're starting to get this idea in the 19th century of civic life. Civic life happens in the town. The town is settled and, 
and in a way, uh, the Congregationalists and Puritans, you know, they've managed to achieve dominion uh, over nature in these places, and they're a lot more comfortable with that. And the swamp, because it is exceedingly hard to tame, it's hard to make a swamp, particularly in the 19th century. I'm sure it's hard to make a swamp anything other than a swamp. You can try to fill it. You can try to drain it. It's going to be kind of difficult to do. Um, so, so yeah, it's it, it naturally is this place that they project all their ideas of darkness onto. Exactly. That's one of the points I make in Shadow and Shelter, uh, sort of positioning the swamp as, in a lot of ways, uh, the nemesis of the Southern Cavalier uh, gentleman sort of self-creation, right? When you're talking about the antebellum South, especially in the decades leading up to the Civil War, you're talking about uh, an area that was, I mean, as particular plantation owners, eminently self-conscious about how they look to Northerners and how they look to Europeans as well. And the the idea of Southerners as living in a kind of backwater, right, uh, living in a kind of backwards place, was something that they tried to counteract by saying, we are gentlemen farmers, we are living this sort of romantic vision of a kind of medieval landowner's life, and we are in, you know, we hold dominion over nature all around us. Well, swamps, it was awfully hard to gain dominion over, right? And we have a lot of uh, examples of pretty miserable failures to gain dominion over swamps. And so as the cavalier gentleman, right, sort of writ large, tried to establish himself in the eyes of a judgmental north as the master of nature, swamps were there to remind, well, not so much necessarily, right? There are limits to your power of dominion. To this day, as you suggest, some of those attitudes persist. For example, um, there's a place in Massachusetts not too far from Boston. I think it's in Norton called the Hockamock Swamp. Uh, I'm reading from the, the write-up in Atlas Obscura. It's, uh, I, and the Hockamock Swamp, we should say, was the place that, that the Wampanoags made their very last stand as mm-hmm. the English settlers tried to extirpate them. Uh, it says, for centuries, locals have reported strange activity in and around the swamp, from Bigfoot sightings to Native American ghosts, strange orbs that weave through the trees, UFOs, unmarked black helicopters, Helicopters, satanic rituals, and cattle mutilation. In 1980, Boston Magazine reported that police sergeant Thomas Downey spotted a six-foot-tall winged creature while driving late at night on a country road. That was probably a heron. But anyway, I could go on and on. And But it sounds like sort of just the boxed set of the X-Files. But, right. but I assume these ideas are not strange to you, or strangers to you anyway, right? I assume anywhere where there's a swamp, um, that's where they're going to predict pr- project all their cryptozoology and, and wacky legends. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, I went on a, a swamp tour at one point as a teenager in hopes of finding the Honey Island Swamp Monster, who never actually materialized, but that was part of the lore of the whole thing. And, you know, this idea of monsters in the swamps, and I think that that list that you just went through about covers the spectrum, as you say, the box set of the X-Files, you know, they come from a lot of different places. Um, one really sort of interesting sort of swamp monster origin uh, comes from the idea that, or the fact that slaves would escape into the swamps. And this image of the maroon, or this sort of uh, slave reverted to a state of sort of semi-wildness, becoming a kind of boogeyman, uh, begins to show up in Southern literature, antebellum Southern literature. And, you know, these sort of boogeymen who have very definite kind of cultural significance and in some ways become kind of reminders of cultural wrongs uh, start to people Southern literature as well. But yeah, I mean, I think 
again, the pure wildness of the swamp, the fact that these are a few pockets of mystery that we have left in a kind of Google Maps era, you know, lends itself ever more to, uh, you know, the persistence of these kinds of legends and these kinds of myths. I think another reason for the kinds of legends you were just talking about, too, is that in some cases, um, post-emancipation or even uh, pre uh, post-outlawing uh, of importation of slaves, when people did it illegally, they got caught and there were slaves who were here who were not supposed to be slaves, they give them swampland, right? It's just like, okay, go live out there. You know, We don't have any place else for you to live, but here, you can go live out in the swamp. Right, exactly. This is land that we're not likely to use, so we'll parcel it off and offer it as a as a kind of a yeah, <laughs> as a reparation of some sort. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and you've got a the the whole history of I've got some swamp land to sell you as well. <laughs> sort of connects to that idea of uh, you know, swamps as questionable commodities and of questionable utility as well. And of course, you know, the swamps were unusable and indomitable until suddenly they weren't. And all of a sudden, we have sort of a drastic shift in how we think about swamps in the early decades of the 20th century. Right. Well, we're going to take a little break here. We're talking to Anthony Wilson, uh, professor of English at LaGrange College in Georgia, the author of two books on swamps, Swamp, Nature and Culture, and Shadow and Shelter, the Swamp in Southern Culture. We're going to be back with more after this. Listen, lad, I built this kingdom up from nothing. When I started here, all I was was a swamp. Well, the king said I was daft to build a castle on a swamp. But I built it all the same, just to show them. It sank into the swamp. So, I built a second one. That sank into the swamp. So I built a third one. That burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the fourth one stayed up. And that's what you're going to get, lad. The strongest castle in these eyes. That's Swamp Castle from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, but it's also kind of a, you know, an apt lesson uh, for the conversation we're about to have because, as uh, Dr. Anthony Wilson, who's still with us, uh, was saying at the, towards the end uh, of the last segment, for a long time you couldn't build on the swamp. You couldn't get rid of the swamp. The swamp was just sort of there. And then suddenly you could, um, which brings us to the Everglades. Uh, joining us now also is Michael Grunwald, a senior writer for Politico magazine and editor-at-large of Politico's new public policy site, The Agenda. He's also the author of The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise. Michael Grunwald, welcome to this conversation. Well, thanks for having me. Um, and as, as you could probably tell, Michael is with us through the miracle of Skype. Um, so maybe just begin with the basic story uh, of the Everglades. Remind people how big it was before we started chomping away at it. <laughs> well, uh, appropriately, given uh, who I'm talking to, it was originally about the size of Connecticut. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it was uh, it was mostly just water and grass. Uh, and, you know, it's most sort of relevant feature as far as uh, certainly human beings or at least white people were concerned was that uh, it seemed pretty uninhabitable and people hated it. Um, the, uh, you know, the Spaniards who came in the 16th century thought it was pretty disgusting. They, they, uh, they told the king that all of Florida was, the quote, was uh, liable to overflow and of no use. Um, and uh, and white men didn't really come back until the 19th century when uh, the U.S. Army started chasing the Seminole Indians around the swamp. And the soldiers 
who uh, did that chasing and exterminating were mostly completely confused for why they were doing it. Because they said that the place was, they talked about how it was God-abandoned, God-forsaken, um, suitable only for the haunt of noxious reptiles or the resort of pestilential vermin. Um, they really hated this place, and they didn't understand why we didn't just leave it to the leave it to the Indians. It was only when the drainage era began, and uh, people started to see that you know these these wetlands that were wastelands could be turned into something productive and useful for mankind um, that. Americans really started to think maybe we can make something of this swamp. Let's go back to those poor Seminoles uh, who were chased into that swamp. I mean, they were already kind of there, but um, they never really surrendered, right? I mean, ultimately, the, uh, even, yeah, our, but, even our native peoples aren't, aren't, aren't native. Right. Um, yeah, so, so explain. The Seminoles eventually, there was 300 of them left, and President Tyler just kind of gave up? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, they, the Seminoles still call themselves the unconquered. Mm. Um, because, uh, right, essentially, he, uh, the president took the advice of so many generals who had just said that this miasmic morass is just uh, unsuitable for human habitation. And, uh, yeah, it was sort of our, our unfinished war. You know, let, let me uh, go back to uh, Dr. Uh, Anthony Wilson for just a second. Now, we're, ta- we're, we're now here in the age of President John Tyler, but really this whole idea of what can you do with the swamps uh, goes right back to our first president before he was president, right? George Washington really wanted to do something about the Great Dismal Swamp. Anthony, tell us about that. Well, he was an investor in the Great Dismal Swamp Company. Um, which was a sort of slow-motion catastrophic failure, um, this endeavor to clear and drain the Great Dismal Swamp. Uh, went on for over 40 years. At one point, Washington uh, was quoted as saying he hasn't heard anything from the people he invested with uh, for, for decades. Um, and essentially, it stands as a kind of example of, at that point, the utter indomitability of the Dismal Swamp. They made some of their money back by selling the timber because they were constantly cutting down these sort of inexhaustible trees from the swamp and sold the timber for that. But the effort to uh, sort of rehabilitate the land and drain it was a miserable failure and most tragically uh, led to the deaths of countless uh, enslaved workers over the course of those decades. Uh, Charles Royster has a fantastic book about it called The Fabulous History of the Dismal Swamp Company. Um, well, speaking of those enslaved workers, I mean, I assume, I don't know what Washington wanted to do with the land that the swamp was on, but in general, plantation owners just want, flat out wanted more land that was arable or workable in some way, right? Exactly. Convert useless land into useful land, um, both for obviously practical reasons, and then also, I think, as part of that kind of a myth of dominion uh, over nature, um, that we're not just living in some sort of a backwoods down here. We are carrying out, you know, a sort of holy and gentlemanly errand to rehabilitate the land and to claim it from wildness and savagery. All right, let's go back to Michael Grunwald now. Um, at, at what point does the Everglades stop looking indomitable and, and so unpleasant as to be a, a place that you would just never go and start to look like, well, maybe there's something we could do with this? Well, I think the, the professor made a, a great point about the way this was really seen. You know, conquering the wilderness was not just you know, sort of our manifest destiny during the uh, the James Polk era. It's it's been our biblical duty, right? And God said unto unto them, be fruitful and multiply 
and have dominion over the earth and subdue it, right? I mean, that's uh, that's what they were talking about. And it was right after the Seminole War, the you know the first U.S. government report on the on the Everglades came out that uh, that talked about draining it, and you started to have just really a century of failed drainage attempts um, by really progressive people. Because remember, this was sort of conservation in action, right? Conservation was the opposite of waste and wetlands were wastelands. So bringing it into productive use was seen as this great service to mankind. Um, so you had a lot of Northeasterners came down with these grand visions that they could just sort of dig a few canals and the swamp would kind of drain itself. We had a governor down here named Napoleon Bonaparte Broward, um, Broward County, right? Uh, and he ran his campaign platform was that he was going to save the Everglades. But of course, he didn't mean save it from drainage and development. He meant save it from oblivion. Uh, he said that water was the enemy of the people of Florida. And he thought that he could just dig a few canals through the Everglades and water shall run downhill. And of course, what happened was in the in the dry season, too much water ran down the slight amount of downhill that we have here in South Florida. And you had basically the swamp on fire, soil subsidence, saltwater intrusion. Um, it was just a disaster. And then during the wet season, you know, these canals were not big enough to deal with the incredible flooding. And people who thought that their land had been drained were suddenly sitting on swampland. And that's you know, that's where you get Florida becoming this real estate punchline, right? You want to buy some swamp land in Florida? That's when that's when it became a big joke. Right. So, I mean, the, the song about this period would be a slight repurposing of the Bobby Fuller hit. It would be I Fought the Swamp and the Swamp Won. Um, right. As, right. Uh, it's like the uh, the Groucho Marx m- movie Coconuts about the uh, the Florida land boom of 1920s, right? where he says, you can even get stucco. Oh, boy, can you get stucco. <laughs> Um, and so you should uh, tell at least one more of the stories of this long parade of, of suitors who tried to marry the swamp and were turned away. Uh, Hamilton Diston, uh, I mean, he took it pretty uh, personally, uh, what happened between him and the swamp. Sure. I mean, he was this uh, the heir to a Philadelphia saw manufacturer, and he came down and he he— undertook what was, you know, he wanted to get out of his dad's shadow. And the way he was going to do it was by creating this Florida paradise. Um, he was really the first in a long a, a long row of kind of dreamers and schemers who wanted to sort of rewrite what, uh, rewrite the landscape of Florida. Um, and he, uh, he undertook what was then the largest land purchase in the history of the United States, 4 million acres. And the same story, he started draining it. Um, it looked like it was going great. People were talking about this incredible conservation work happening down in South Florida. And then in the late 1890s, it started to rain. <laughs> and uh, there was a big rainy season. And suddenly all this land that he had gotten paid by the state for draining um, suddenly seemed undrained. And the state wanted its money back. Um, the uh, the legend was always that uh, that Hamilton Diston killed himself in his bathtub, which was not true. Mm-hmm. But uh, But part of the... The legend is that he ended up broke, and that was true. He uh, he sort of uh, threw away his his dad's money on this crazy Florida dream. Um, let's go back to Anthony for a second. So Michael mentions it starts raining. Well, when it starts raining, this is a problem. This is a problem that mid-19th century America uh, can see in some of its newly acquired territories in Mississippi and Louisiana, but not necessarily know what to do with. But it seems to them like... 
you know, I mean, Katrina was a long way off, but it seems to them like, wow, we should get rid of some of this land that's so wet uh, because every time it rains, we have terrible floods. Uh, how did they interpret this challenge? Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that when we think about swamps and the history of the swamps, particularly now when we think about them as wetlands and increasingly endangered wetlands, wetlands rather, uh, we tend sometimes to downplay the practical challenges that swamps actually did represent to people, right? I mean, sw- uh, flooding was a major problem. We've got some catastrophic floods uh, in southern history as well, New Orleans in particular. Um, and you have, I mean, for a long time, it was just a, a completely sort of intractable issue. And often efforts, uh, as Michael just described, to do something about this just compounded the problem and led to unintended consequences that that led to even more sort of tragedies. Um, so I think that up until really, I would say the, the 1910s, 1920s, um, swamps were just sort of this uh, this quagmire, right, this completely intractable problem. And then technology catches up and with a vengeance, we begin to have the widespread deforestation of the South, the cut-and-get-out era of the timber industry, and just uh, you know drastic reductions in uh, the, the amount of wetland acreage that we have in the South um, over a relatively short period of time. Okay. Now, in the final segment of the show, we're going to talk about the, the dawning of the ideas of true conservation of the swamps. But I think we have to finish the kind of ravaging part of this, too. Let's uh, switch back over to Michael Grunwald. Um, so, Michael, um, after World War II, you've got a well-trained Army Corps of Engineers looking for something to do. Uh, there's not a war to fight uh, right then and there. Uh, and they know all kinds of things that they used to not know, and they've developed all kinds of equipment. So they turned this stuff loose on the Everglades, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really started in 1928. Um, you had this massive hurricane that, I don't know if you ever read that Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, but right, uh, it blasted Lake Okeechobee through its flimsy dike and killed 2,000 people in the in the Everglades who had moved there to farm vegetables. They had been drawn by all these promises of drainage when it turned out that the land wasn't safe. That really brought in the federal government. This is like, this is a problem we've got to solve once and for all. And as you mentioned, the Army Corps was sort of reinventing themselves as the shock troops in America's war against nature. And you got to give them credit. They came in and they did what Distin and Broward and Dickie Bowles and so many of these other schemers had failed to do. They came, they dug uh, 2,000 miles of levees and canals. They used pumps so powerful that the engines had to be cannibalized from nuclear submarines. And they essentially created this water management system that grabbed hold of every drop of water that falls in South Florida. Um, They made this, you know, hellscape uh, that nobody wanted and everybody thought was, you know, just an unconquerable swamp. They turned it into this paradise where you can have 8 million people living here and 100 million annual tourists and God knows how many Taco Bells and Jiffy Lubes and souvenir t-shirt shops. Um, They really created this megalopolis that, of course, at at the same time has ended up really ravaging the the natural resources um, that, you know, that we used to think were so lousy and and now have discovered are actually kind of cool. Right. Michael, as you write, um, suburbs like Weston, Wellington, uh, Plantation, Pembroke Pines, Miami Lakes, Miami Springs, these are all former parts of the Everglades wetland. And I I think Miami International Airport uh, is part uh, of the former Everglades. Is that correct? 
Absolutely. Just about everything uh, west of I-95, the uh, you know that sort of coastal ridge. Um, it was all low-lying swamp, and uh, you know, and it's still today at just a few feet elevation, which is why when the you know the Her- Hurricane Irma's come through, um, we get really serious flooding down here. Um, let's go back to Anthony for a second, and then we're going to take a break. We're going to finish the show uh, talking a little bit about uh, conservation, real conservation. Anthony, one thing that we haven't maybe referenced is a, a lot of this, and, and it starts much earlier, or maybe it does start uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. A lot of this is also the South's res- uh, response to poverty. The South is poorer than the North. Uh, they're not developed in the way that the North is. So they're looking for ways to make use of natural resources they might not have even tried to manipulate before that. Well, exactly. And it would not do to follow the model of the Native Americans and the lubbers to simply sort of live off the swamps in what we might call the swamp's own terms, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the mandate or the the necessity uh, to find more arable land and to, uh, you know, to to transform the swamps into farmland um, in some ways was a less practical way to uh, to escape poverty, I suppose, than simply, uh, you know, living the way that, I mean, as William Bartram uh, put it when he uh, went on his uh, journeys into the or travels into the swamplands of the South and witnessed the Native Americans there living in what he called a kind of a luxury, that, uh, you know, they, there was abundance everywhere, and they had to, without labor, they were able to, uh, to live off the bounty of the swamp. Well, uh, you know, white Southerners didn't really think that way. And, you know, the the sort of slave economy also lent itself to a model of, you know, make the land arable and then farm that land. Um, so, yeah, there was, there was a necessity, as you put it, to use the swamps in whatever way they could to mitigate the poverty that was a reality in the South. Um, but it didn't necessarily fit in a practical way the kind of agrarian ideal of uh, Southern life that was sort of dominant at the time. All right, we're going to take a break here. We're going to have more of Michael Grunwald, more of Dr. Anthony Wilson, uh, more of swamps, of course. So uh, hang with us. We'll be back for the final uh, section in which America does discover, maybe too late, the idea of swamp conservation. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Natalie Portman. And now, back to Colin. In just a second, uh, we're going to uh, introduce you to somebody who has a very different relationship uh, to swamps than the one that you just uh, heard about, and her name is Gwen Rowland. We're going to get to her in about two seconds. But Michael Grunwald, before we um, end this segment, I think it's worth noting anyway that uh, ultimately some people's attitude uh, towards the Everglades changed. We, at the top of the show, mentioned the name Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. People know that in in a fairly gruesome and grim context now uh, as the name of a school where a shooter took place. Obviously, she's more than that, and, and her story is intimately connected to the one we're telling right now. Right. She, I mean, Marjorie wrote a, wrote a book called River of Grass, um, which was the first book to really sort of recognize the Everglades as, uh, as something, you know, really spectacular and special. The first, the first line is, there are no other Everglades in the world. And uh, people started to realize that this was a 
you know, a kitchen and nursery for, you know, this spectacular profusion of fish and wildlife. And also that the, that the you know, the aquifers sit right underneath it are, you know, responsible for South Florida's drinking water and that the same kind of sprawl that's been destroying the Everglades is, uh, you know, is kind of ruining our quality of life and, uh, and threatening our, our drinking water. So um, there's been a sort of belated recognition that the economy of the entire region really depends on the health of the Everglades, um, not just because of the millions of people who, who visit it every year and appreciate it, um, but because it really is sort of what makes South Florida South Florida. That this is, you know, that we don't just want to be the, you know, the the Jersey Turnpike with better weather. And uh, that really was, you know, Marjorie was part of this whole kind of Earth Day movement that started to recognize that, you know, the the water we drink, the air we breathe, the fisheries that feed us, the landscape we like, are something to be preserved and not just exploited. Um, Michael Grenwell, one last question. We should say that Michael is the author of The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise, but he's also editor-at-large of Politico's public po- public policy site, The Agenda. And, and So putting that hat on for a second, uh, what about this fellow Scott Pruitt? What does he think about <laughs> Everglades and swamps? I, I'm almost terrified by the answer. Well, I think it's fair to say that he takes a, I mean, maybe the nice way to put it would be a traditionalist view. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, he's, uh, you know, he sees the Clean Water Act as a, as a problem. It's an obstruction to industry um, and to developers who would like to, uh, to uh, develop the, the wetlands and swamps of, uh, of America. And again, um, you know, today that seems for a lot of us very out of step. But it is important to remember that people used to look at these swamps and think that they were something that need to be, the words were things like improved Mm -hmm. and reclaimed and developed, which when you think about it is supposed to be a good thing, right? I mean, uh, you know, you want, you want your child to develop and, uh, and people wanted their swamps to develop too. Um, You know, some of us uh, feel different in this modern day and age, (laughs) Um, but uh, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency was supposed to, to prevent that, that kind of thing. But, uh, but as he has said, that he doesn't think the Environmental Protection Agency should just be about environmental protection. And certainly there are uh, other values that other people have. Right. So I think that's why you see a lot of anxiety even coming out in our culture while you have movies like Annihilation. Uh, and the guy who's doing Alex Garland, who directed Annihilation, is now talking about directing The Swamp Thing, uh, which was a DC comic book. All right. We have to, uh, we have to share. Yeah, go, yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. So Michael Grenwell, that'll give you something to live for, something to look forward to, even if the real swamp goes away. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to shift gears over now to Gwen Rowland, a Georgia resident writer and former full-time swamp dweller in in Louisiana's uh, Atchafalaya River Basin Swamp. She wrote a memoir uh, of her time there, uh, Atchafalaya Houseboat, My Years in the Louisiana Swamp, uh, and her latest book, a novel, is called Postmark Bayou, uh, Cheen. I hope I said that part right. Uh, And so, Gwen Rowland, welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. It's good to be here. So I've watched the uh, documentary uh, about you uh, and and your companion living in a houseboat that you built uh, on uh, on the watery part, the rivery part uh, of this vast swamp. It, it is, I think, the biggest. Is it the biggest swamp in America? It is. It's the largest river basin swamp in the on the continent. Yes. And explain what drew you there. Why, why, of all things, you could do with your life at that moment? Did that seem to be the thing? 
Well, my family went back to the 1840s there. They were some of the first settlers in the Bayou Shane community. And um, my family was only a half a step out of the swamp when I went back in it. My family left right before the 1927 flood when my grandmother's children reached uh, school age, she wanted them to have an education, so they moved to the levee. And so my mother and half of her siblings were born outside the swamp, and the older ones were born in there. And it was a puzzle to my family why I wanted to go back. And it just um, was always presented to me by my grandmother as just the most beautiful place on earth, a place of such abundance that you could just plant anything and it would spring out of the ground. And as far back as I can remember, my whole life has been an agricultural experiment. And I love trying to achieve that perfect balance of a farm where you buy nothing, everything, your waste is all used up into producing new things on the on the property and as I was finishing up my master's degree there just weren't any graduate programs or jobs that I wanted to do where I felt like I could learn as much and do as much as going out there just for a summer but at the end of that summer I ended up staying almost 10 years there were just so many things to learn and it was just such an easy life you could grow things year-round it was the same thing that drew immigrants there that uh, made people want to settle there for 350 years. And everything was still there when I was among some of the last people to live there full time. It wasn't the best time to live out there. The early 1900s are considered the golden age, and that's the period that I set by you, postmarked by you, Shane. Uh, when there was a real community there with um, about 500 people. And then a, another great period that I would have loved to have lived out there was probably the 1840s and 1850s. But any any period would, would be a good time to live out there. Um, there's a sense that I get uh, from your chronicle of that time that it's it's less a sense of trying to dominate an area than to let the area dominate or at least dictate the rhythms of your life, right? That the the uh, the Atchafalaya River and, and its swamp kind of tell you when to get up and what to do with your time. That is so true, and that's one of the benefits of living close to nature, whether you're on a mountaintop or in a swamp, uh, the body just sort of naturally relaxes into living without calendars and clocks. There's a famous scene in the memoir of the day we have to make a trip into civilization, and we cannot figure out what day it is by looking at three different calendars hanging on the wall among our hip boots and life jackets. And that was the most difficult thing about living out there, was having to go into civilization when we had to abide by clocks and road signs and such as that. Um, And it was the most difficult thing for me to get used to when I moved back into civilization. And, of course, now that I'm retired and living in rural Georgia, I'm back to not knowing what day it is and what time (laughs) it is. 
Well, um, I'm pretty sure it's Tuesday, but um, I'm not 100 percent sure it's Tuesday. So, um, you know, when you watch the documentary, you see these uh, this beautiful light, you know, and this languid uh, river and uh, in this, you know, dense swamp stretching out next to it. Um, And I think for a lot of people who haven't spent any time there, I mean, I don't know, you describe jumping into the river and and swimming out to the sandbar and washing your hair and having your kind of bath and then swimming back there. I think a lot of us people are going, what about water moccasins and alligators and nutria (laughs) and all kinds of horrible things? Uh, Were there all kinds of things like that in in your swamp or did they leave you alone? Both. There were lots of all of those things there, but... um they didn't really want to be our close neighbors. The alligators stayed further back from the bank than where we were, except in very low water. And uh, we loved being out crawfishing or running our nets and lines and just stopping to watch Nutria waking up in the morning and sitting on a log looking just as grumpy and uh, out of sorts as some people feel when they wake up in the morning to watch the nesting birds. It, it was all just beautiful. It, it was not creepy at all. Creepy was coming back to civilization. <laughs> so uh, what do you feel now that the swamp taught you? In other words, what part of the swamp's lessons all these years later are still with you? Um, I wish everyone in their 20s could spend that decade in a situation like that. It taught me self-sufficiency. It made me realize I can do more than uh, a five-foot-two person should be, should think that she could do. It made me, it prepared me for my life in civilization to always take the most interesting job, not necessarily, well, usually the one that did not pay as much as others, but it was the more most interesting one, the one where I could learn and stretch myself. It gave me the courage to take jobs I really was not prepared to take and could just quickly learn on the job how to do whatever needed to be done. And um, I guess that's the main thing. And it set a high bar for boredom. Mm-hmm. I, um, I don't think I would ever be bored anywhere because I can entertain myself. I can make things. And um, it was just good for all of that. You know, back to that first point that you were making. I mean, it's worth noting that you and your companion, Calvin, you, you built this houseboat without <laughs> perhaps a lot of houseboat building training or even the right equipment. That's right. We just had some hand tools. I think we even borrowed a ladder. We had a hammer and a chainsaw. And, um, and we bought an old house off of a plantation when they were selling off the, the, um, the cane field workers' houses. And we took it apart, and as we took it apart and pulled the old square nails out of it, we just paid attention to how it was put together. And so we just um, drew a plan on some paper with crayons and uh, started from scratch, just putting it up there. And we had good materials to work with. That helped a lot. Some of our boards were 35 feet long. They were old cypress from out in the swamp, which by putting it on our houseboat, we took it back out in the swamp. 
Um, Gwen, uh, it wasn't a blue ladder by any chance, was it? We're missing a blue ladder here. So. <laughs> no, it was a wooden ladder. Okay. And I think we returned it to our neighbor that we borrowed it from. All right, so that's not where our ladder is. Um, so, Gwen, it's, it's a risky thing to ask a Southern woman about her feelings, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, I mean, it's, a limit, it's a risky thing to do with a limited amount of radio time anyway. Uh, but y- you went back for this documentary. It was, what, you're 30 years out from your time living in yeah, the swamp. Yeah, by so, that time it was about 35 five years, and I had not had contact with Calvin since then, and um, it was uh, it was great that Louisiana Public Broadcasting and producer Christina Melton, she just found the book in a bookstore during a rainstorm, looked at it, and thought this was the book she'd been looking for to do a documentary using only one person's voice, mm-hmm. and she asked, for us to be reunited, and Calvin was delighted too, and we just had a lot of fun with it. Was it so? It was ma- mainly fun. Uh, we've only got about forty-five seconds left. But what were those feelings like? Did, did any sadness or wistfulness uh, get stirred up as you looked around oh, that familiar sure. landscape? You, you don't get. You're not that close and do that much with someone without um, pangs of nostalgia forever. And. Uh, I'm just glad that we're back in touch again. We're still good partners as far as raising chickens and talking about what we're growing in our gardens. It's as if we never stopped communicating in those 35 years that we didn't see each other. As far as regrets, I miss that crawfish and catfish every day. We <laughs> ate it about 365 days a year. I bet you did. It's, it, it does sound delicious. Gwen Rowland, we're going to have to stop there, but Gwen Rowland, a Georgia resident now, but the author of uh, Achafalaya Houseboat, My Years uh, in the Louisiana Swamp, and her latest book is called Postmark Bayou Chain. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Colin. I enjoyed it. All right. And thanks to Josh Nalea, who produced this show, often under great hardship almost like someone having to make his way through an especially challenging swamp. Uh, But we're done. We made it. And we'll be back tomorrow.